Morning. Someone has taken my iPad. There it is. Because I, I got to be like Moses this morning. We don't have the scripture overhead. Thank you. So I'm going to have to read scripture from a tablet. <laughs> they don't pay me that much. Don't worry about it. It's been a weird second service, I have to say. I don't know who was cuter, John Rossetti or the baby. The way, <laughs> did you have that same sense that I did? I was like, wow. What a smile. And then I learned more about Tim's estrogen and posterior positioning than I've ever needed to know. So, all right, well, let's keep the fun rolling. Uh, we're going to be in First Samuel this morning, chapter 21. Um, all right, so it's, uh, it's good to be back in the house of the Lord and to uh, study his word together. So 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we're also gonna be in part of 1 Samuel chapter 22, and we're gonna talk about three things this morning, so I'll give you a heads up. We're gonna talk about the destructive power of deception, the suffering and death of the innocent, and saying no to the king. So I'm hoping one of those topics this morning will grab your interest. And the last one in particular, I hope you walk out of here taking hold of and being convicted by. But let's start by reading the scripture today. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, or if you just want to listen, that's absolutely fine. It's nice when we hear the word of God from the same version. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now, just to give you, I'm sorry, a little bit of history. I don't have to give you much. Basically, David's on the run from an angry Saul. Saul is bitter. Saul hates David. And David is on the run in order to keep himself safe from the anger of Saul. So that's where we pick up here in chapter 21, verse 1. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them, to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except for the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. It is wrapped in cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 6 through 23. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeath, Gibeah, under the tamarisk tree on the, height, on the height with a spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. 
Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Then Doag the Edomite who was standing by the servants of Saul said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests were a knob, and all of them came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. But the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, because their hand also was with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priest of the Lord. The king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. It's a lot of scripture, but it's a simple story. David is on the run from Saul, and he goes to the city of Nob, which is the city where the priests live. There's over 80 of them there. And David is hungry, and instead of relying on the Lord for his needs, for his sustenance, he has a plan. I will go to the priest, and I will get bread. I will get some food. I will get some substance. And he goes to the priest, and the priest says, all I have is the showbread, the bread that we put in the temple. We put 10 loaves in the temple, and we eat it in front of the Lord to show his relationship with Israel and us, that we, we commune together. All I have, David, is that bread to give you. David says, well, I'm on a mission from the king. If you want to honor the king, you'll, you'll feed me. I'm on a mission from the king. I'm blessed by the king. I'm in good with the king. We have a good relationship. I'm on a mission. In fact, the, the mission was so urgent that I didn't even bring my sword. Okay, okay, David, I will give you the bread, the showbread. I'll give you the leftover showbread that was... They replaced the showbread every day, fresh, hot. I'll give you this we're removing from the table. I'll give you that bread in honor of the king and in honor of your mission. David lied to the priest. The priest thought he was doing something good for the king who served God. For the messenger David who served the king, the priest knew nothing of this deception 
of this lie that David was on the run and that David was not in good with King Saul. In fact, King Saul wanted to kill him. So David lied. Why did David lie, church? Why do any of us lie? That's the real question I want to ask this morning. You know, the statisticians tell us, those who study the psychology of the human mind say that most of the people in this room have lived deception in their life. You've lied about something long term. You don't have to be that boisterous. I don't, <laughs> we're just gonna go with everybody's guilty, all right? Nobody, nobody confessed this morning, all right? Not yet. But we all at some point have lived a lie, some form of deception in our life. Would you all agree? Yes. The sad thing is some of us sitting in this room right now are currently living a deception, are currently living a lie. <laughs> Why is that, church? Why did David lie? David lied to fulfill a need that he had that he didn't think the Lord would meet. David lied to get what he wanted. Have you ever lied to get what you want? No, no. Why else do we lie? You know, one of the big reasons we lie is to hide what's in our hearts. Maybe there's a deep emptiness that's in your heart and you don't want anybody to know about. Maybe there's a deep loneliness in your heart that you don't care to divulge. Maybe there's doubts about your faith in God that, you know, for years you've been living a deception, trying to put all the pieces together, but you can't. Maybe you're hiding adultery in your heart. Maybe you're hiding addiction to drugs or alcohol. Men, maybe you're hiding the feeling of inadequacy that you can't take care of your family and you just don't know what to do and you can't tell anybody because that's you, that's your self-worth all wrapped up in that ball. Here's something even more scary. If I were to ask most of the men in this room this morning, have any of you looked at any inappropriate content on your computer in the last month, nearly every hand would go up. Is that deception? Is that living a lie? Why don't we tell people about our struggles and our pains? We want to look good in other people's eyes, don't we, church? We don't want people to know our weaknesses. We don't want anyone to know our struggles. We don't want anyone to know our pain. And instead of being honest and forthright, instead of not lying, instead of not living lives of deception, we go about living like all the world is a stage. And we are actors to some degree. We hide our sin. We want to avoid punishment. We want to impress others. We want to get what we want. And sometimes the only way we feel we could do that is to deceive but church, deception, living a lie causes pain. Now, there are white lies, right? Everybody tell a little white lie every now and then? What? You want to... No such thing. Well, I came back from Rome a month ago, and we learned how to cook in Rome. We thought we learned how to cook. My wife wanted to make some chicken cacciatore. So she did. She had 20 pots and pans. She had plates piled high. She had dirty dishes everywhere. It, it looked like a war zone. And when we came home, to, we sat down to eat at the table. She said, how is it? I said, I said, now listen to this de deception. I have never tasted chicken like that before, honey. Because I wanted to avoid pain, right? 
<coughs> but it was a clever way. But I'm not talking about little white lies. I'm not talking about telling the Nazis that there's nobody hidden upstairs. I'm not talking about those lies. I'm talking about the lies that are sin, that are deep. The lies that you know about, the deceptions that you know about. And I want you to know, church, that we all struggle with these lies. And I want to go to John chapter 8 this morning. And I want to tell you why. John chapter 8, in verse 44, Jesus says this. And he's talking to the Pharisees. You are, you're, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So church, Jesus says something clear to the Pharisees here, and he's speaking to us as well through the Pharisees. He says that in your former life, church, you did not have your father. Who did you have as your father? You had Satan as your father. You were led by the prince of the power of the air. And the very nature of Satan is that he is the father of lies. The very nature of being a son of the father who is Satan is that your nature is that you are a liar. Can we agree on that? But when we become Christians, doesn't that all go away? When God becomes our father, doesn't the nature of the liar go away? I ask you, but let's go to scripture, Colossians 3 verse 9. Paul says this to us, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being likened to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now some verses say that we have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. But Paul's point here is no less valid that as Christians, we still, church, have that old nature that is a liar. So what do we have to do to combat that according to Paul is we put on the new nature. But if you put something on like your pants, church, you have to do it every day, right? You have to put on your clothes every day. So Paul tells us elsewhere that we have to put on the full armor of God every day. Because church, we as Christians, we as sons and daughters of our heavenly father, no longer sons and daughters of Satan, still struggle with the old man. And it is a daily battle to put him off and to put the mind of Christ on. And I appeal to you church this morning, if you are living a destructive lie, confess it to your God and to those you are lying to because the results of destructive lies are the ruination of relationships. The damage to people can be phenomenally large. It can be tremendous. David lied because he didn't trust that God would meet his needs. Why do we deceive? Is it because we want people to think we're more than who we are? Is it because we want people to think that we're better than we are? Is it because we want people to think that we're more spiritual than we are? Or is it because we don't want to get caught in our sins? But lies cause damage and they need to be dealt with. So what <coughs> damage 
Did David's lie cause in the story? He went to the priest of Nob and lied. And Saul called the priest of Nob before him and said, why have you done this? Why have you helped my enemy David? Priest of Nob said, I had no information about this matter between you two. I thought he was a messenger from you. I thought he was in good stead with you. And I helped him, king, because I thought by helping one who you sent, your emissary, I was helping you. But Saul is so wrapped up in his jealousy and his anger. And as you heard, as we read 1 Samuel chapter 21, He was literally saying, woe is me. No one supports me. No one knows how hard it is to be me. So he says to the priest of Nob, I don't believe you. You are my enemy. So he says and does kill him and all the other priests in Nob. But he doesn't stop there. He kills all the citizens of Nob, every man, every woman, every child, every baby, every cattle, every lamb, every ox, kills them all. David's little white lie devastated a whole town, a whole town. My question for you is why did those innocent people suffer if there's a loving God? That's a question a lot of people ask. And what I usually say is, I don't know. But the Bible does give us some answers to that question. The Bible does, and it's not the easy answers that, well, God is sovereign and he can do anything he wants. Have you heard that one? And that's supposed to make us feel good about babies being uh, beheaded. Doesn't do it for me, totally. Yes, God is sovereign, he can do whatever he wants. Another argument might be, well, John, those people weren't innocent. We are all like filthy rags. So they were just as filthy as anybody else, and they deserve to be put to death just like you and I do because none of us deserves to live. Theologically, I believe that. I'm with you. It is by God's grace that I take every breath, and he can choose to have me not take that breath tomorrow, and he would be righteous and just to do that. And I would not be one to raise my voice. Why would I? He is God. But it doesn't satisfy me totally because I put myself in these positions. When I read scripture, I don't just pass by and say, oh, look, everybody was killed. No, I'm crazy enough to put myself in the town of Nob. So go with me to the town of Nob. You're a mother. You're in your house. Your husband's out working in his, his profession, whatever it might be. You're there with the children in your home. Maybe you're preparing the midday meal. Maybe you're cleaning the house. Maybe you're teaching the kids. Maybe you're dressing the kids. You're making clothing. Maybe the kids are playing on the floor. And all of a sudden, out the window, you hear screaming. What's going on? This is Nob. This is the town of the priests. It's usually pretty quiet around. Well, the screaming gets louder. Well, I better go see what's going on. So you go to the window, and you look down the, the road there, and you see... People running, people fleeing their homes, and you see men with swords killing people and slaughtering people, and you see it get closer and closer and closer, and then you see one of these men come into your home bearing a sword, and you fall and you cover your children. You say, please, not my children. Don't kill my children. Then you are slaughtered, and you are killed. That's how I read Scripture. 
This is not a small thing that occurs as a result of a sin. But then I go back to God, why do you allow that to happen? Why didn't you hear the pleas of the mother? Did they not reach your ears, God? Are you not everywhere? Are you not omniscient? I, John, would have stopped the swinging of that sword. But then I would be blasphemous, wouldn't I? But let me tell you how Jesus answers this question, and he does answer this question. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered this fate, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Powerful words from Jesus. What they were complaining about, his disciples came to him and said, Look, the, the, the Galileans are going to worship the Lord. They're going to make sacrifices. And Pilate is in the crowd killing some of them as they bring their sacrifices to the Lord. So the blood of the Galileans is mixed with the sacrifices. Jesus, how is this good? How is this right? How does this work out in my concept of God that the, Ga the Galileans who are going to worship the Most High God, Pilate is, is knifing them and killing them and, and mixing blood with the pure sacrifices. It doesn't compute. Does God punish people for sin? Yeah. Why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Because of their sin. Why did the flood occur? Because sin had reached heavenly heights. So sometimes people suffer and die because of sin. Not the case in this example. Not the case in the example of the priests of Nob and their families or in the example of the Galileans going to worship, Jesus says, let's read that again. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? What's the answer there, church? No. These Galileans were just the same sinners as any other Galilean. Some Galileans suffered that day. Some Galileans didn't suffer that day. Jesus is saying the difference between the new Galileans wasn't their level of sin. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. What does he mean? If I don't repent, I'm going to perish on my way to sacrifice to God in Jerusalem? No. How many of us are going to perish that way? So why does he say to them, unless you repent, you will likewise perish? What's he talking about, church? We've got to think here. What's he talking about? He's saying, if you don't have Christ, if you don't have God, you will perish in this world of evil and sin, maybe at the hand of an evil person maybe at the hand of happenstance, maybe in the midst of an earthquake, but if you don't have Christ as your savior, you will die just like those worthless Galileans because in God's eyes, they were just as evil as anybody else, no more, no less, but they did not have God. So the insanity 
of what happens in this world at the hands of evil people will make no sense to any of you. You won't be able to put it in a box. You won't be able to fathom it unless you have Christ, unless you repent. Unless you repent, you will die the same type of doom and gloom death that they did. What am I talking about? If you're an atheist and you're living in this world and you have no moral absolutes, you have no objective truth, you have no scriptural standards, there is no God, there is no after. If there is no judgment, there is no accountability, you've heard it all before, what keeps us from doing evil for our own good? Nothing. Nothing except getting caught. What causes us to not do evil as men and women of God? God in our life. What Jesus is saying is that in this world, Humanity has rejected me. And because of that rejection, evil rules the day. The father of lies rules the day. Evil people rule the day. You have chosen that, God says, when you rejected me. I was your king, you chose another. I was your God, you wanted to be God. And here are the consequences of that type of life. If you want to live life in this world without me, Evil will prosper. Innocent people will die. But one day, I will reconcile the world to myself and I will heal the land. I will heal the bodies. I will heal the hearts and minds of those who love me. But for now, you can't understand the mind of God, but know that what you suffer is by your own choice, by your own hand. And one day I, God, will correct that, but not until I come and take you to my place that I'm preparing for you. So there will be difficulty, church. And I don't ever tell people, if you become a Christian, all your troubles will go away. That is not true, but you'll understand your troubles have a purpose. The purpose of troubles, church, is to drive you to see that you need him, that we need him. A world left to men's devices is a world of misery, doom, and suffering and pain. It's a world where I might have everything I need, yet 500 miles away, a whole town starves to death because they don't have an ounce of food. That's the world we live in. That's the world we chose. That's not the world he wanted. And that's not the world he will restore us to. So why do good people suffer seemingly for no reason? Because this world is evil. It's cursed. It has given up on God. And evil people do evil things. Dogs bark, my friends. But without God, you will die without having understanding and any future. So that was a second wonderful point. Let's get to the third point. So there's good news in the story. There was a group of people who were Saul's men who Saul said, go wipe out the city of priests. Church, what did they say to Saul? No, no, you've gone too far. Saul, you've gone too far. 
We will not wipe out the city of priests. We will not wipe out or lay our hands on the people of God, the priests of God, those who wear the linen ephods. We will not do it. Saul, you've asked us to do a lot of crazy things. We know, brother, you are down. You are living in, in, in a mind full of hellacious thoughts. And we have to draw the line. We will not touch the things of God. Doag does. Doag the Edomite says, I'll do it. And but I want to focus for a minute on who says, we will not do it. Because I want to talk to you, church, about persecution. I want to talk to you about saying no to the king, standing up to the king and saying no to him. When he asks us to touch the things of God and defile them, sometimes we have to stand up and say no, and it's coming closer and closer, church, and I just want to say a word about that this morning. We all talked about persecution for years, and we all said, oh, it's coming, it's coming. Thank goodness it's not here yet. It's coming, it's coming. But church, it is at the door. It is at the door. And I want to give you a few examples that I wrote down here on my little notes to share with you, and I'll show you what I mean. I'm going to ask you how you'll respond. In China, they're convicting Christians by accusing them of business crimes. They've been persecuting the underground house churches in China for years. It's illegal to be a Christian in China. And they had informants, they had many people to try to uproot the, the church in China, but they have not been able to. In fact, it still grows. And now they're suspecting who might be house church leaders, and they're coming up with trumped-up business charges, and they're putting them in jail for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. There's just another way for China to attack and try to suppress the Christian church. Pakistan, two young Christian teenagers were arrested because they're Christians and would not honor Muhammad, and they were accused of blasphemy, and they were sent to prison. They're sentenced 20 years. Two teenagers, 12 and 18. Well, John, you're talking about China and Pakistan. There's always been persecution there. It doesn't hurt me. It doesn't bother me. I'm sitting right here in America. I got my rights, and nobody's taking them from me. Thanks for laughing. I appreciate that. Because you got to laugh or you'll cry. In England, England, a Western civilized nation that does not persecute its people, supposedly, a woman was arrested for praying across the street from an abortion clinic. She was across the street from the abortion clinic and was praying out loud. You can watch the video. She was not being inappropriate. She was quoting scripture and praying. She was arrested because of the potential that she could incite hate. Her scriptural speech was hate. In Canada, you all know probably about the Canadian pastor, uh, but there have been several Canadian pastors who have been arrested, but... One was recently arrested for illegally protesting drag queen story time in a Canadian library. Legally, in a legal location, in a legal place. He was protesting drag queen story time for children at the local library. He was arrested. Well, that's England, that's Canada, that's Pakistan, that's China. I don't care, what's that got to do with me? A Washington Times reporter posted the comment, he was a Christian, posted the comment on Facebook, Jesus died so that you could live. Facebook blocked it because it said it violated their hate speech policy. You can look that up. I'm not making that up. It's not a Snopes disproven story. A Washington Times reporter's post, Jesus died so that you could live, is hate speech. 
A Rhode Island parent went to a school board meeting because she knew that some of the things they were teaching were inappropriate. Some things were creeping into the curriculum that just were wrong, lies, and deceptive. She went to the school board meeting and she said, I would like to see the curriculum that you are teaching our children. I would like to have it. I would like to see it. The school board said, no, you will have to sue us. The school board that's teaching her children over those who teach her children said, you parent can't know what we're teaching unless you sue us. Persecution here. There was a man kicked out of the Mall of America in Minnesota for wearing a shirt proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to God. And you can see that video too. He was escorted out of the Mall of America for wearing that shirt. Why? That's hate speech. Haters. I'm sitting and looking at a room full of haters because you all believe those same things, don't you? Room full of haters. I used to live in Reading, Pennsylvania, so this was of interest to me. A man was arrested in Reading, PA for loudly reading scripture across the street from a pride parade. Look at the video. He was across the street from the pride parade. He was loudly reading scripture, but that's a First Amendment protected right. The cop, the officer put him in cuffs. They released him, but they put him in cuffs and made him move along. Starbucks staff were fired for not agreeing to wear gay pride pins or gay pride symbols. So those are the examples I have for you this morning, church. And what has, what's that have to do? Are we going to be like Saul's men who stood up to the king and said, I will not touch the things of God. I will not compromise on that. I have my standards. Yes, I might be a sinful man, but I am a godly man, and I am controlled by the new nature, not the old nature, and I choose God, not you, king. I will say no if you want me to do certain things. Are we strong enough to do that, Christians? In today's world... If you have scripture on the back of your office wall and you're Zooming, you might get asked not to have that on the Zoom call. But if you have a gay pride rainbow, please wear that pin. Please show your loyalty to the gay pride folks. Church, I want to tell you, I love gay people. And I don't want any snickering about that or laughing. I love gay people, homosexuals, lesbians. Love them to death. Love them like any other sinner you can name. Love them. They need the gospel. They need salvation. Jesus loves them more than me, more than I ever will. And I want them to be not persecuted, not harmed, not belittled, not screamed at. There's a group of people to go up to the University of Delaware from a particular church that have these horrible signs that say the cruelest and nastiest thing to those people that I won't even repeat in present company because they're so vile and wicked what that church does. And I've told my son, you love those people and you share the gospel with those people because they're just like you and me before we were saved. But I do not want that ideology forced down my throat and to be told that I'm a hater because I don't think that's a good lifestyle. I will not accept it. I will not touch the priests of God. They will not trample on the things of God in my life. But what does that mean, church? What does that mean for me? I'm, I'm older than most of you. I'm in my 50s. I have a family. I have two boys in college. 
If they come knocking on my door at work and they say, John, unless you wear the pride flag, you're out of here. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I feed my family. I pay their school tuition. God can't do that. If I'm thinking like David. So it comes down to a decision. Do I trust God to meet my needs? Or do I say, I can't stand up because these two hands have to work to provide everything for my family. Ultimately, I'm the provider for my family, not God. And these are the wicked thoughts that go through my mind when the Lord asks me to stand up. But here's the truth, church, and here's something even worse. When I say something like that, that God will provide, you know what? If I stand up against the king and say no, I might lose my home. My kids might have to drop out of college because God doesn't promise me that he will give me everything I want. Am I willing to sacrifice to that level? I might if God says, yeah, I'm going to replace everything for you. But what if he says, you've got to struggle for a little while? I don't know if I'm ready for that. I like good things. That's how I was made. But I like the things of God more. Pray that I can stand firm. I pray that you can stand firm. I pray that we can say, I will not let you touch the things of God in my life. I will stand. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. They're going to sing us a song. And we're going to worship the God who is just and righteous and who loves us. And for whom we're willing to stand firm and not give an inch. In people of hate. But we know that we are people of love. So I'm going to ask you to leave here today showing that love so that we as believers in the Most High God will be known for our love. Go and rejoice in the Lord your God.